Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Ralph Manguel, a City Journal contributing editor and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. You can find him on Twitter at Rafa underscore Manguel. Ralph started at MI as a project manager for legal policy, but he has since become an important voice on public order and criminal justice issues, which will be the subject of his forthcoming book, which will be out next year. In City Journal, Ralph has written about the consequences of various reform initiatives from relaxed bail measures and prison closures to the progressive prosecutor movement and new constraints that police are facing on the streets today. Uh, Ralph, as always, you've been on the show before. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much uh, for having me. It's always great to be on with you, Brian. Ralph, I'd like to start with a piece you've just published for City Journal uh, this past Friday. Uh, the various police reforms that were enacted recently by the New York City Council. What's in this specific legislation that has you troubled, and what effects will it have on police going forward? Yeah, so you know there 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 are a lot of things in the the legislation. I won't go into every aspect of every bill in the package, um, but I will pick out a few. Uh, First, I mean, there's a, a kind of qualified immunity workaround uh, that's in here. Now, qualified immunity is this weird, uh, formally obscure uh, legal debate that's been going on uh, for quite a while, but it, it really came to the fore uh, in the wake of, of the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, where you had a lot of people um, sort of writing these pieces, uh, implying that uh, Mr. Floyd's family might uh, have trouble recovering uh, damages from the government uh, uh, of Minneapolis because of this qualified immunity doctrine, which you know offers immunity uh, to police officers when they're acting in the course uh, uh, of their duty and violates somebody's rights in a way uh, that had not been clearly prohibited by prior precedents. Um, I have written in the past that this debate, you know. Kind of reflects an overstatement of the case by by those on on either sides of the question. So you have advocates of qualified immunity reform, uh, I think, overstating the degree to which qualified immunity prevents uh, plaintiffs from recovering in these kinds of police misconduct cases. And on the other side, you have uh, you know sort of police unions overstating the degree to which uh, police officers will be financially burdened uh, by uh, qualified immunity reform. And so what the city did was was basically create a workaround so that uh, it will now be more likely that police officers can be sued in their personal capacities. Um, now, that may not, not change a whole lot in the end, because in New York City, like in other uh, jurisdictions around the country, uh, New York City police officers are indemnified against personal liability uh, by the city. However... There is some worry, uh, you know, within uh, the rank and file that what we'll start seeing is the law department uh, push back on on indemnification uh, and and be more willing uh, to fight officers on on whether or not the particular conduct was actually in the course of duty, uh, etc. Um, another thing in the uh, in the reform package was uh, something that would require police officers to now live within the five boroughs. Um, this is right. particularly problematic at a time in which the New York City Police Department, like other departments around the country, has had a real uh, uh, 
problem recruiting and retaining officers, right? We know that New York City is one of the most expensive places to live in the country. Taking uh, some of the more affordable communities, particularly for officers with families um, off the table, and I'm thinking here of, you know, towns in Nassau, Suffolk County, Westchester County, et cetera, you know, where you can buy a lot more property for your money as compared to, you know, what you would get in New York City for uh, an equally safe neighborhood we're going to really raise the transaction costs of a career in policing at a time when we can least afford to do so, uh, particularly for younger officers who are not, you know, very advanced in their careers and aren't earning as much as, as senior officers in, in higher positions might be earning. Um, in addition to that, there is um, this provision that would take uh, the final call as to officer discipline out of the hands of the police commissioner and put it uh, within the realm of the responsibilities uh, that fall to the Civilian Complaint Review Board. Um, you know, this, I think, is only going to feed the perception uh, for police that they are not going to get a fair shake uh, whenever it is that they are alleged to have made a mistake in the field um, or engaged in some kind of misbehavior. And so, you know, one of the reasons I'm troubled by this is not necessarily the individual impact of any one of these, you know, sort of examples of, of the reforms that are included in this package, um, but but rather it's discouraging because it comes at a time in which New York City just closed a year in which homicides jumped to 45% and shootings nearly doubled. They increased by 95% uh, or 97%, I should say. Um, what's also interesting is that homicides increased in New York City very, very slightly in 2018, year over year. They increased by three that year. Um, in 2019, they increased by about two dozen. Uh, and then in 2020, they increased by almost 150. And what we are seeing now is sort of the first time uh, since the turn of the century in which we've had consecutive years in New York City of rising homicides. Um, and of course, you know, that problem is hyper concentrated in some of the city's most vulnerable neighborhoods. And you know, when you see that happen, and this is what you know the city council is prioritizing, what it tells you is that there isn't a real constituency for law and order that has the city council's ear. And that's what's really troubling, is that rather than spend its political capital on things that might be calculated to decrease crime, the city council has really seen uh, fit to just go full steam ahead on the reform front. And, and I think that is going to set us up uh, for a particularly disappointing 2021. In our special issue, New York City Reborn, which is just out, you've got a, um, a bigger article looking at some of the other reforms that have been pushed through in recent years that, in your view, are contributing to this, this uh, new um, crime environment. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of some of those changes that have also taken place, especially with regard to bail reform. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things about this most recent reform package from the city council is that if you look at the rhetoric around criminal justice reform debates around the country, but also here in New York, you get this sense that criminal justice reformers are sort of fighting this, you know, underdogs cause. Uh, that they are somehow, you know, that that somehow it's it's long past time, uh, you know, to 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 start changing the law. When in fact, if if you actually look at you know the city's recent history, there have been quite a few reforms enacted in recent years. Um, and so just, you know, to go over a few of them, I mean, in 2017, Brooklyn elected a new district attorney in Eric Gonzalez. He is 
uh, one of the sort of stalwart figures in the so-called progressive prosecutor movement who's used his office to decriminalize a bunch of different uh, offenses to support the parole bids of those who've been uh, convicted in cases uh, within that office um, and has increased pretrial diversion, um, including in gun cases. Um, in addition to that, you've had uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, expand uh, his own uh, pretrial diversion effort, uh, specifically the youth engagement track, which is uh, uh, meant uh, for teenage offenders, uh, expanding that eligibility for, for people who have uh, committed even first degree robbery. Um, which is which is troubling. Uh, at the state level, you've had the raise the age law, uh, a discovery reform, which has really raised the transaction costs of criminal prosecutions. Uh, but also, of course, as you mentioned, the bail reform, which went into effect on January 1st of 2020, and has really uh, uh, led to a, a particularly sharp increase in the number of people who are now spending the pretrial period out on the street, uh, whereas you might have had more people in pretrial detention. Uh, the bail reform is particularly frustrating because, uh, you know, New York City had been kind of using cash bail uh, for a long time and and I think really uh, put itself behind the eight ball um, by, by not doing, uh, by, by overly relying on a monetary release condition like cash bail, which was, was basically used uh, as a way uh, to keep particularly dangerous offenders behind bars. And the reason that bail had to be used to do that is because New York uh, has always prohibited judges from considering dangerousness in pretrial release decisions. This is an archaic prohibition, in my opinion. Um, and it's one that, that New York had the opportunity to get rid of when it did its bail reform. Um, and it chose not to. So not only did New York uh, State make it more likely uh, that defendants will be released pretrial because they they will no longer be eligible for bail. Um, it also did that at, while maintaining the prohibition on the judicial consideration of dangerousness, which means that you know there really isn't any mechanism that exists anymore uh, for judges, even one as inefficient as cash bail, for judges to uh, keep dangerous uh, defendants behind bars. And because COVID has sort of delayed the pretrial justice period. Um, or elongated the pretrial justice period by delaying the the you know the sort of course of a criminal trial, um, you now have uh, people who are likely high rate offenders who are spending a lot more time out on the street, uh, and and I think we're starting to see you know some of the effects of that um, you know and 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 that's just you know sort of the tip of the iceberg. I mean. You know, the state has been decarcerating at a, at a rapid rate. I mean, Andrew Cuomo likes to brag that he has closed 17 state correctional facilities during his tenure, which is more than any governor in history. Um, and of course, the, the police department has, um, you know, really stepped back uh, on, on a number of fronts. You've had stops go down after the, uh, the conclusion of uh, the litigation uh, when Mayor de Blasio took office. Uh, you've had arrests decline uh, significantly since 2013, I think almost down 37%. Uh, so, you know, there's been a real shift uh, on all fronts with respect to, to crime and justice in the city. And, I, you know, what, what I fear is that uh, the fact that this particularly large increase happened in a year in the, uh, that, that we had the pandemic is going to delay um, the process of, of people sort of second guessing themselves and, and starting to question whether some of these reforms may have contributed to what we've seen. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, New York hasn't been alone in terms of seeing rising crime. 
It's also happening in Los Angeles, Minneapolis, other cities. But the argument does come up that it has nothing to do with any of these criminal justice reforms or policing reforms. It's really just a result of the unnatural conditions of this past 2020 with the pandemic uh, and and the subsequent lockdowns to control the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, that this this created the, a kind of situation where you would have uh, a higher crime. I, I wonder what you say to um, people who are making that argument. Yeah, I mean, there you know when people sort of point to the pandemic as a causal uh, factor of, of the crime increase, you know, they're making one of two points. One is that, you know, the sort of shift in routine activities uh, somehow made it more likely that these crimes would explode. I don't really see how the mechanics of that argument play out. Um, you know, I, I can understand why the pandemic would lead to a decrease in, say, um you know, commercial uh, uh, robberies, because, you know, after the shutdown, a a lot fewer businesses were were open. um, And so you wouldn't have seen as many, you know, holdups of of, of places with cash registers, etc. But I I don't see homicides and shootings, uh, which are the the two crime categories that I'm most troubled about, uh, being particularly affected by the shift in, in, in routine activities brought about by the pandemic. Um, one of the other arguments that they make is that the pandemic's economic effect um, has really brought this about, that you know, what we're seeing are really just crimes of desperation that are a function of how much people have uh, lost jobs and uh, you know, how, how much income they've, they've lost out on. And um, you know, again, that's another argument that that doesn't really um, seem to hold water in my view. I mean, if you if you go back, including in New York's history, uh, what you'll see is that there's a very tenuous, if at all, discernible relationship between socioeconomic indicators and crimes like shootings and homicides. Uh, in 1989, uh, the year before New York City set its homicide record, uh, which was 2,262 murders in 1990, the poverty rate was actually um, slightly lower than it was in 2016, which is the year before uh, New York City set its record low for homicides, which is 292. Um, you know, the idea that that the pandemic uh, driven unemployment was behind the crime spike. I just don't find to be a particularly strong argument. Uh, you know, and as for other cities that saw crime increases, I think you'll find a lot of similarities in terms of the policy levers that have been pulled um, between uh, New York and places like Los Angeles and Minneapolis, which of course defunded their police, and uh, you know uh, other places that have uh, elected progressive prosecutors and you know have decarcerated or enacted bail reforms, like in Chicago. Um, and so, you know, you may not have seen as many reform levers pulled in, in recent years as you've seen in New York, but, you know, I think also there's a, an argument to be made that it would have taken more to undo the success that New York has seen over the last couple of decades. I mean, you know, during the great crime decline of the 1990s and all through the early aughts, New York was really able to fortify itself against crime increases in a way that a lot of other jurisdictions weren't. So that the city, I think, was a lot less vulnerable to crime increases in response to to shifts in criminal justice policy um, than than other cities were. So that it took, you know, a a lot more straws to break this uh, proverbial camel's back than, than it may have taken in other cities. You know, in the in the 90s, you know, Americans fed up with crime in the streets, 
They finally said enough. They elected reformers, including Rudy Giuliani in New York, who drew on new ideas to reduce crime and, you know, really ignited an urban revival that lasted uh, two decades, three decades, really. Uh, You know, today, as you mentioned earlier, there doesn't seem to be a constituency for tough on crime policies, at least in a place like New York. So that era of the 90s seems far away. Will we have to undergo a longer crime wave before more sober-minded criminal justice policy can return? I mean, I hope not. I hope not. Um, but I fear that, that that's that that's the case. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that we're experiencing is just, um, you know, uh, when when crime was was brought under control in the 90s, you know, by the time we got to the late 90s and early 2000s, New York had become a much more attractive city uh, for people to send their kids to college in, for people to take their first jobs after university in. Um, and so I think we have a lot of people living here today who've been here for a while, but who weren't here during the bad old days, who don't really understand what that was like. And then I think you also have some people who were here who just have forgotten, um, you know, the tempo, the lack of temporal proximity to that, uh, to that era, you know, has, has clouded their memory. And, and I think, you know, the, the city's resilience uh, in the fight against crime over the last two decades um, has made a lot of people, I think, overconfident. Um, you know, I think those are definitely two things that we're seeing. But you know, I think more than anything else, uh, this sort of resistance to um, being uh, to, to, to arguments uh, that that reforms might be driving some of these increases is really just, you know, a function of a very a very sincere subscription to the idea that the criminal justice system is is not a force for good and that whatever benefits were brought about um, at the hands of the criminal justice system in the in the 90s just wasn't worth the costs. I think there are a lot of people who sincerely believe that and who are making that argument. Um, and you know what those people are essentially doing is proposing an experiment. You know, what they're saying is we should try something that's never been tried before rather than do what we know has worked before. Um, and you know, it's just not an experiment. I, I, I think is particularly wise. Um, you know, and it's one that, again, if it goes bad, it is going to fall disproportionately on the shoulders of the people who are are least well positioned to deal with that. Um, and ironically, it's going to fall on the shoulders of people in whose name a lot of these criminal justice reforms uh, have been proposed. And that's been one of the sort of most frustrating aspects of this. I mean, if you look at the demographic breakdowns of who's really suffered um, uh, the brunt of this crime increase, I mean, you know, since 2008, you can go back that far. And what you'll see is that 95% or more of shooting victims in New York City have been Blacks and Hispanics. Last year, it was more than 96%. And so when you have a big jump in that crime category, what that tells you is that you know it's going to be a very specific group of New Yorkers who are going to suffer. It's going to be Black and Hispanic men, usually young men, which, you know, don't make up a particularly large slice of the city's population. You know, things on the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, they'll get worse, but they, you know, they'll be tolerable, um, you know, at least compared to, to what things are going to be like, you know, in, in, in East Harlem, just a little bit north, or the South Bronx, or, you know, East New York, or Brownsville, Crown Heights, neighborhoods like that. Um, those, are that, that those are the places uh, that, that really stand to lose the most here, and, and, and it really just breaks my heart. Well, it's, it's a lot like 
what has been the situation in Chicago over the years, right? New York starts looking more like the Windy City, where um, you know crime is is localized in minority communities, or at least it has been. Um, that's not a not a particularly attractive model. Something you know, a, again, you've written about for us. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I, I lived in Chicago for for a few years. Um, my wife's originally from that city, and you know, it really is just remarkable because you know, as bad as things are on the city south and west sides, you just wouldn't know it if you live in one of you know, if you're lucky enough to live in one of the nice north side neighborhoods, places like Lincoln Park or Lakeview or you know, the Gold Coast. I mean, these are beautiful beautiful parts of the city with very little street crime, very little visible disorder. Um, you know, one of the things about New York, though, that that does give me a, a, a glimmer of hope that that things will turn around faster uh, than than they perhaps would in in another city is that New Yorkers, because of our subway system, because of how integrated it is, um, I think uh, suffer the burden of crime uh, and disorder uh, much more evenly than. Um, citizens in a city like Chicago, where you can pretty much avoid all the crime and disorder uh, by by picking the right neighborhood. I mean, even if you live in a really good neighborhood in New York City, you still have to take the subway. And we know that, you know, the quality of life on, on the subways has just been deteriorating uh, significantly. We've seen a rash of, of really violent attacks, sub, subway pushings, um, you know, attacks on train cars, um, you know, a, a just rise in, in the homeless population, you know, basically using subways as a shelter. Uh, you know, New York has a lot of public spaces that have that, that have become more vulnerable to disorder in a way that, you know, even uh, well-to-do New Yorkers who, who can afford really, you know, expensive rents, $3,000 studio apartments, um, are, are going to notice um, the crime uptick. And so, you know, hopefully what that portends is a, a much shorter leash uh, for reformers than, than that might be the case in a place like Chicago. But, you know, that remains to be seen. Well, thanks very much, Ralph. Don't forget to check out Ralph Manguel's work on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. And as I mentioned earlier, you can follow him on Twitter at Rafa underscore Manguel. And that's with an A. Uh, you can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Again, Ralph, thanks very, very much. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.